Episode 10 of the Agents of E-Commerce podcast. I know I've taken a bit of a hiatus, but you know, life is what happens when you're not recording podcasts. But that makes this podcast just so special. Episode 10, I have Rachel Miller. No relation, although she is a sister from another Miller. Rachel is the founder of Rosalia Project, whose mission is to protect and clean our oceans. Who can argue with that? And through Rosalia Project, she's developed a product called the Core Ball, which led to a Kickstarter, which led to an e-commerce site. And she's going to talk all about that, as well as other things that we should all really know about the products that we wear and the impact it has on our environment. Something most of us don't think about, but you really should. So I encourage you to check out her websites. They'll be linked in the comments and enjoy the show. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Agents of E-Commerce podcast. We've made it to double digits, which is significant. Well, not really, but it is to me. And in honor of that 10th episode, I have one of my dearest and definitely oldest and, well, in our relationship, I'm not saying she's old because she's as old as me and I don't consider myself old but anyway i digress this is rachel miller say hi rachel hello my dearest and oldest friend (laughs) i know that's not the nice way to introduce you but um, that's just how it goes so so rachel and i uh were were destined to know each other our mothers were very close friends and they actually raced to see who would have the first child and I won. So I'm, what, six days older than you? And my mother is still angry about it. Yeah, that's mothers for you. But <laughs> yeah, so we've known each other forever. Uh, we did numerous ski vacations and shared in each other's knee injuries, which Rachel is recovering mm-hmm. from one as we speak. But uh, but why I have Rachel here, uh, and I think she's she's so impressive, is she's had an amazing career that's led her ultimately into the world of e-commerce. Um, and I will definitely want to hear about her, uh, educate you a little bit about Rachel, uh, beyond just our shared history and knee injuries. But again, so Rachel, tell, tell about about where you are now and and how you got here um you know i think it's uh, an amazing journey from brown to uh you know eco warrior to kickstarter startup and now e-commerce pioneer okay so where i am now is manufacturing the cora ball which is the world's first microfiber catching laundry ball. And it is meant to help everyone who wears and washes clothes protect the ocean by throwing this little device, colorful, kind of happy looking device. It looks like a dog toy, but is it? You throw it in your washing machine and it swirls around with your clothes, helping collect little tiny fibers that would otherwise wash out your washing machine and pollute our public waters. It's getting into our food and our drinking water as well. So the Coraball is meant to protect our ocean from inside washing machines, your washing machine, my washing machine. 
Yeah, but I, I am a user. I was an early adopter, and I can say it's pretty awesome. And you feel like you're doing your part to stop those microplastics from entering our water tables. So definitely, it's an amazing product. We appreciate that. So the way I got here didn't look like there was no indication that this would happen necessarily. A lot of the things I did early on didn't necessarily make sense. My parents were worried. Probably <laughs> I was a little worried that it wasn't all fitting together. Um, but I have to say that there was one relatively constant thread, and that was the water. So I grew up in upstate New York, so on lakes and rivers. But I also grew up meeting Eric and, and your, you and your family on the Jersey Shore, so in the ocean all summer. Um, and that that's the common thread. But all roads for me led to... Rosalia Project, which is a nonprofit we started to protect the ocean, and then to Coraball. Yeah, tell us a little about Rosalia, because I mean, I think that's an amazing organization. I got I had the privilege of traveling with you on an expedition last summer, so yes. that's an interesting story as well. Great. So with Rosalia Project, that's really how Coraball will eventually start. So ten years ago. My husband and I went on a little mini vacation to Matinicus Island off the Gulf of Maine, or in the Gulf of Maine, off the coast of Maine. And we just wanted to hang out with our Newfoundlands and get some windswept salty air, windswept beauty. And we went to the little beach next to where we were staying. It was covered in trash, absolutely covered in fishing gear and all sorts of sort of consumer trash like wrappers and bottles. And I threw myself around a bit, and then we pulled it all up above the high tide line. And the way I describe it is my husband had my epiphany. He said with that evening, as I was kind of still grumbling about what we had experienced, he said, there's one thing that really pisses you off in the world, because I'm relatively even-tempered. He said, that is ocean trash. So let's do something about it. And that right there is how Rosalia Project was born. And so Rosalia Project is our nonprofit. Our mission is to clean and protect the ocean, conserve a thriving ecosystem, marine ecosystem. And the primary lens through which we do that is through marine debris. So we've been working on the problem of ocean trash in all of its forms in different ways. So we work on derelict fishing gear and consumer trash. And we learned about microplastics and have been working on that. And uh, there's a couple things that set Rosalia Project apart from other marine debris organizations you might have heard of. So that's one, we use multiple strategies and that's we do cleanup. Also, we do education. We embrace innovation and technology, looking for solutions. And on the solution side, we also do solutions-based research. So real science that's publishable, but also has a basis in being something that can shrink the runway between understanding and solving a problem. Uh, we work in coastal waters, urban and coastal waters, primarily in the Northeast. Our operating area for now has been New York to Bar Harbor, but we're home ported in Kittery, Maine. So the most of our time is spent between Boston and Bar Harbor. And yes, you joined us on our expedition vessel, American Promise, the greenest sailing research vessel in the world, uh, where we go and we deliver 
education programs with a little bit of science and solutions, or we do big scale cleanup programs while we collect data, or we use it as a platform to do uh, some of our science again, that eventually leads to solutions. So that is Rosalia Project. And as a sailor on that ship, I have to say uh, it was an amazing experience, especially for me who gets notoriously seasick. Uh, not just anybody would get me out in a boat, uh, but Rachel did. And it was awesome to be a part of the crew, to interact with the kids because education is a big part of your program. We did uh, several beach cleanups. We saw in, in real time, a seagull rescued from marine debris, I believe it was stuck on a fishing line. And just you, you see the impact directly that's happening in front of you and what we're doing to our environment. Uh, I really would suggest you take a look at it. I'll, I'll have links in the comments to all the things we're just talking about. From Rosalia, and it's been a passion of yours for some time, how did the idea of the core ball come up? And, and then when we get to the Kickstarter, which I think is one of my favorite Kickstarter stories ever, um, talk a little bit about that. We'll start with us learning about the problem of microfiber pollution. That happened in around 2013. It was not discovered by us. It was discovered by a team at Plymouth University in the UK when they started doing samples of, of ocean water and they filtered them through a really, really fine filter. And they realized that there's these teensy tiny little fibers. I mean, they truly are micro. A lot of them you can't see with your naked eye. You need a microscope. And then they looked at where those might come, might have come from, and they attributed them to our household textiles. So our clothing and sheets and bedding and uh, towels and stuff like that. And that took a little bit to sort of get out. Uh, we learned about it in 2013, really before it had hit real mainstream consciousness. And it still is on the way to meeting or to having mainstream consciousness. And it was one of those problems. I don't know, Eric, if you felt like this. But you learn about something, especially a, a problem, and it's something that just screams at you more than just speaks to you, but screams at you. And that's how we felt about this. We, we thought about it like, wow, of course, we've had our clothes go threadbare, but never thought about where those threads have gone. And to think about something this small, which is very ingestible, being in our public waterways is a little scary because another fact is that the majority of our collective home textiles are made of plastic, synthetic materials. And we know that plastic in the ocean become associated with persistent organic pollutants, with chemicals that are already in the water that end up stuck to marine-borne plastics. And these are things like PCBs and DDT, known carcinogens, chemicals that we know interrupt reproductive systems, and that they can get transferred into the tissues of creatures that ingest them. So that's, you can read a lot more about that um, all over the internet at this point. But the microfiber problem just seemed like it was going to prove to be a big one. And we simply said, can we figure out a solution? Can we be part of the solution to this problem? Definitely. And as a consumer and a user of fleece, I mean, for a lot of us that are outdoor enthusiasts, it's magic. It's great. It's easy to take care of. It keeps you warm. Most of us had no concept that this you know, proliferation of these materials 
are having a devastating environmental impact. And it's definitely something like that. You mentioned my opening. It's like going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And you're so right. And we were the same. And we're sailors and skiers. And a lot of the enabling technology is in our clothing. Like the thing that lets me have 22 degrees Fahrenheit as my favorite temperature is the fact that I have a very light pair of ski pants and a spectacular puffer jacket where I can go outside and mountain bike and ski and do all the things I want to do, honestly, without having to wear a moose hide because I don't want to wear a moose. Ah, oh, moose hide. That's hot. I don't. <laughs> Could you imagine? So, uh, so <laughs> are you imagining a moose hide right now? I, unfortunately, I'm kind of stuck in that at the moment. <laughs> Keep going. I'll, I'll get right. off of it eventually. Let's, okay. Well, let's go from that to back to being on a research vessel, realizing that microfiber is likely to prove to be one of the biggest plastic pollution problems facing our oceans and deciding we want to be part of the solution. And so um, you know, it takes a long time, it, or at least took us a long time, not everyone necessarily, to go from I want to solve a problem to having a thing or a, a technique to do it. And so um, we decided that uh, we wanted to try something to enable, we wanted, we had two goals, have impact right away, immediate impact. And secondly, to help raise awareness in a very significant way about the problem. That was right about the time that microbeads were getting, just starting to have microbead bans happening and, and real great consciousness was being uh, raised on microbeads and microplastics. But microbeads have a fairly low-hanging fruit of a solution. They had an alternative. There was, uh, and they could be banned and, and they could be banned realistically. We have other things that could do exfoliation in our personal hygiene products. What we realized very quickly is that with microfiber, it, we can't, I am not a fan or a proponent of trying to ban synthetic clothing. You just heard how we feel about um, being in cold weather or imagine going swimming. I mean, people did it, obviously. People did swim in cotton or wool, but um, I don't know how many people would, would like to do that now. Uh, it's just a little bit unrealistic. I prefer a moose eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to swim in your moose. <laughs> now I'm now I'm picturing that, Eric. <laughs> so uh I don't know that we can feed and clothe the world on our agriculture. So that's another element here is synthetic clothing plays a role, a technical role, a performance role, but it also might play a role in enabling the population growth and food requirements that this planet is going to have. But we need to do it better. We cannot let our clothes be a one-way conduit from our selves to poisoning the ocean. So there's, we see this as an opportunity to solve a problem. So two criteria, make an impact right away, raise awareness. We decided that a consumer solution was going to be a way to potentially uh, achieve those goals. And we started to come up with ideas that you physically put in your washing machine to stop the problem. We wanted to do an inline filter first. That's so obvious. But then we realized how difficult that was going to be with something that was so small and that we'd also have to negotiate with washing machine manufacturers who we think 
will and should and will be on board. But then we realized that was going to take a really long time. So that wrecked our make a difference now criteria. And we decided something the consumers could use themselves. So we came up with some pretty bad ideas, like ideas that just plain old didn't work. This little thing that looked like a soap dish that we wanted to like put in the holes and the side and sort of like swing around, but that didn't work. It, the, the clothes broke it off every time we tried it. Uh, and eventually we came up with a, a sphere around thing. Well, I'll tell you actually what was the spark. Our initial ideas, they just weren't, like I said, they weren't working. And so we decided to just stop and say, what are our requirements? Our requirements are that we catch small things out of flowing water. Those are the two requirements. The water has to keep moving or we'll back up your washing machine and flood your house. That's not okay. And so catch small things out of flowing water. And we realized coral does that. Coral totally is stuck to a rock and catches its food, which is small plankton from flowing water. And that's where we got the inspiration for the design that eventually now you can see on our website and put in your washing machine. Awesome. And it's, it's beautiful too. I think, you know, one thing about the coral ball, it's an uh, immaculately designed item. And I think the 3d printing was really cool and how you leverage that fairly early on to create this product. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about enabling technology. I applaud everyone who's ever designed and actually ended up making a thing that requires that's like a 3D thing before having the opportunity that 3D printing gives you. So what 3D printing did for us was it let us iterate every day. We could make a design change and try it with incredible ease, frequency, and most importantly, low cost. The opportunity to use 3D printing to develop this, I think, I think we wouldn't actually have, we wouldn't be here right now without 3D printing because the alternative would be like, I don't know, building it out of like a silly putty or something, but, but then having to make a mold, like a temporary mold and then make a temporary version. And, uh, it, it really is a big, big part of how we've gotten to where we are. Yeah, but the benefit of Silly Putty is you could actually take it and then press it onto your comics and get a picture, <laughs> but it wouldn't really get I, you where you need to go. So, yeah, I see that. I That's just, a problem. <laughs> and I definitely just dated us both by even talking about Silly Putty. <laughs> I think my audience will probably recognize Silly Putty, but that is true. There, there isn't an iPutty out there. So <laughs> no. no. So, um, so we have a team of three on our design team. So my husband is the big thinker. He's the one that thought of the initial ideas. He's the one who like sees patterns in the world and can come up with something out of the blue, it seems. So he's the one who figured out that biomimicry was the way to go, that coral was our inspiration. And then Brooke Winslow is an extremely talented um, designer using CAD program, the computer-aided design programs. And bringing James's ideas essentially from scribbles on a napkin or piece of paper to something that you can hold in your hands. So into the computer, out of the computer, into the 3D printer, and into our hands where we could test them. So she was really important. And my role has been the sort of, I call it mechanical problem solver. So, and then, and then the sort of face of it all, like the communicator. And so in design, we eventually came up with something that we really liked. We actually even soft launched it 
the first time anyone heard about the, what we just called it a microfiber catcher, which was fairly unimaginative, but um, no one, it was just so early and everything. It was in 2016, April, like April 3rd, 2016, at the Georgetown University's Sustainable Ocean Summit. That was the first time in public I presented about our idea for a microfiber catcher, a consumer solution to marine uh, microfiber pollution. Then the Kickstarter happened, right? I'd love to hear about that because that was an amazing thing. Exactly. Yeah. So after we got to something that had a provisional patent filed on it, which was the sort of door opener for us talking about it, we set out to figure out how to commercialize it. So one way was to make it injection moldable. So we had to do a little bit of a design change. We had some great support. This was all happening through Rosalia Project, our nonprofit. And then it, we, we got to a part place where we had our solution. We were ready to put it in people's washing machines. We were ready to try to achieve these two goals of impact and awareness raising. And we'd been working on the awareness raising since, since that uh, April 2016. So we decided that a crowdfunding platform was the right way to go. Because this was coming out of a nonprofit, we really didn't want to go into dilutive venture capital early. In fact, we wanted to hold that off as long as possible. Because we wanted Rosalia Project's programs and ability to do more work be the primary benefactor of this project. And so crowdfunding was the way we went. We launched our Kickstarter campaign at the end of March in 2017, and we ran for a month. Yeah, but, but I love that your, your target was what, like $30,000, right? I remember Ten. that was your goal. Ten. Ten thousand dollar goal. I thought it was thirty. Okay, even 10, better. So yeah. ten. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, exactly. Even better. So yeah, someone told us they're like, make your goal because I I was I wanted to make in early discussions. I was like, oh, let's just go for five. <laughs> but we decided I had some good advice. The advice was, you really need to make sure that your goal achieves your promise. So you can't if if you need ten thousand dollars to make you know I thought we'd be able to make like, I don't know, 2,000 or 1,000 coraballs, one or 2,000 coraballs, and um, be able to use them as promotion. Uh, we give them to the people who backed us, but then have a few extra to um, use to do sort of intro sales calls, and then that would get us orders, and then we'd make more. That was the plan. $10,000 would do it. And um, yeah, so we mobilized our ocean-loving community that we had built up from Rosalia Project, and we launched, and I figured we'd make our goal in about two weeks, and we reached our goal in three hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was crazy. It was the craziest three hours. Uh, absolutely stunning. And so if anyone is listening who backed us on that first day, backed us at all, but especially in those first hours, I have to say thank you because crowdfunding, you need to show, just like even with posts on social media, that success begets success. And what we learned is, is you don't get access to the crowd until sort of your crowd says it's cool. And that's what we, we had a great inner crowd that responded quickly, like crazy quickly. And that gave us access. So basically, we became a popular, uh, popular 
project on Kickstarter within the first three hours of launching on the platform. And we had been thinking about um, like the add-ons that some people do, you know, when you reach certain goals. And I figured I was confident we'd reach our goal. I was wrong every day. Let me just say, Eric, I was wrong every day of the Kickstarter campaign. I would like make a prediction and say, this is what we're going to do if this happens. And then I would be wrong in the best way. So um, we were like, okay, well, when we, when we get to 20, which will take a while, you know, we'll do this. And we got to 20 before we even went to sleep that night. And, uh, and it just went on from there. So what I call a Kickstarter is it was a semi-viral Kickstarter campaign. Um, we got a lot of momentum early. And in the end, we were 3,500% over our goal with a final number of about $350,000. But what was really significant to me was that 8,500 people, eight and a, we had 8,500 backers, saw the big picture, said that we want to be, we use a product that no one has seen or used before, that whose goal is to protect the ocean and protect our future food and protect our future water. And they pre-ordered collectively 15 and a half thousand Cora balls. That's awesome. And that was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. It was so much fun to watch. I mean, I would hit I hit it the first day and then you'd watch the numbers go. I remember a couple of times I messaged you like, do you know you're at this number? He's like, no. I'm like, yes, <laughs> look. But, um, for those of us involved and, you know, following you, we're, we're so proud. It was just, it was, it was a, sort of one of those moments where it gave you a little bit of hope for humanity, which is a nice <laughs> thing to have nowadays. But, yes. and, and so awesome. So you, you got your Kickstarter, you got your funds. You made the yeah. decision that that getting an e-commerce site up and running and, and was was something that I thought was critical. And so, actually, I got involved at that point, sort of helped you a bit, and yeah. just we did some discussions around platforms. But you had some unique requirements, I think, that that helped dictate where you ultimately ended up. Yes, and we are so grateful for your help. So, our requirements were that we learned from Kickstarter is that it, we have a very international audience. Our Kickstarter campaign, we shipped Cora balls to 60 countries or something like that, between 50 and 60 countries, which was pretty crazy. Um, we, we are a small team, so we also needed a platform that could be handled by a small team and had integrations that would allow us to continue to be a small team uh, and to integrate with the partners that we had chosen. So for a little sort of logistics background, we've got a zero waste injection molder in Vermont who makes the Cora ball. And then an hour away from them is an assembly and fulfillment partner who puts the parts together to create whole Cora balls and then boxes them, receives orders, puts the shipping label on and gets them out to people's washing machines, or at least to the shipping carrier. Um, so logistically, we also needed our e-commerce platform to integrate with our fulfillment center. Um, which was right where an hour from our office and an hour from the injection molder. Were there any other criteria that we talked about with you, Eric? Uh, obviously, international was big. I think you know we talked yeah. about something that 
because of the size of the team, you didn't want a lot of overhead, a lot of IT complexity or right. you know, care and feeding, right? You just and and luckily, you know, you hit the market right where there was a number of vendors out there, the Shopify's, the big commerce, um, a few others that I, yeah. I would love you to work to, but you just weren't big enough at the time. And and really yeah. we ended up uh, with Shopify. Yeah, and and we ended up so we we launched with our e-commerce site after fulfilling uh, all the Kickstarter rewards that we had addresses for. We're still actually fulfilling some Kickstarter rewards as people give us their addresses. But uh, we launched in late April of last year of 2018 with Shopify, and um, I have to say we appreciate the help. It's it's been I think it's been a great platform. I obviously have nothing to compare it to, but um, we have been fundamentally happy with Shopify. I have to say it surprises me on some levels, how hard it is to find considering there's so much e-commerce happening in the world, how difficult it was to figure out what platform to use and, um, nothing was sort of perfectly perfect, but, um, yeah, we've been happy. Yeah. And I think part of the reason i felt one of these uh, turnkey solutions were good because you need to focus on the things that matter for you, which is marketing, driving attention, getting the word out. I mean, just recently you were in Forbes magazine, which is fantastic. I mean, I think you you have such a viral feel-good product. That's where you should be focusing your attention, not the ins and outs of running an e-commerce site. And I think that's, that's part of what makes this work. Yeah, and I think that's that 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 exactly is right. We needed something that wasn't going to require its own in-house technician <laughs> to work. And and now and and we had a great great team member who's now moved on um, to other professional adventures. But she was with us in the beginning uh, to help set all this stuff up, and so she's been able to train myself and one other and Brooke on how to use the platform. I mean, I I was getting a lot of it along the way, but the training was pretty straightforward, which was nice. I think one of the biggest challenges to e-commerce for me, my observation hasn't so much, and maybe because Shopify is good, it hasn't been in the sort of order taking and and like the front end of an order. It's been in the shipping that the, the shipping part I find is incredibly challenging expensive and fairly unpredictable, especially as it relates to international. Yeah. So go into some of those details, if you don't mind, we have a couple more minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So the stuff that I think if um, in retrospect, I, and I I wish we knew, and I would recommend to people who are looking into international shipping um, or platforms or that kind of thing is there's some countries that, like UPS really isn't good for, <laughs> like it's not the right choice. You should be using DHL, but that doesn't mean that the neighboring country isn't better with FedEx. And um, it just, it's, it, it became very important. And we added this to our conversation with our international wholesale partners is what is working best for you from the U S. And if we didn't know that trying to talk to other people who do ship, between the US and that country to figure out the best way to do it. It is extremely expensive. And when a mistake happens, um, it takes a long time to correct. And it does, and you don't necessarily get your money back. You, you, it, it, being made whole seems to be a bit of elusive, an elusive thing in shipping. 
Um, also formatting became difficult. So we, we have not been using Shopify's shipping and we're thinking about it, but um, we've been using a different company and there's a very high potential for international orders like this, the formatting to be wrong. And so that's another thing is to be very, very cautious in the beginning and use your uh, best contacts, contacts in the carrier, the carrier's company to check your work in the provider's, provider's platform. So there is an in-between company. There's a company that is in between the Shopify platform and the UPSs, USPSs, and FedExes. There's somebody in between there. You need to, I don't know you have to, but that's what we've chosen. And I don't know if that's better or worse. We're, we are having some trouble with it. Um, and so for, for us, we've had to be really careful about everything, formatting, which company ends up being the carrier and, um, and how to do it all. I definitely think, you know, it's something you're not alone there. So it's about trying to find the right solution that's going to meet your needs and, and you're learning as you go, which is great. You know, you're ultimately being yeah. able to help others potentially someday. So, so with where you are now, I think, you know, you look for the next steps in the evolution of Coreball. Where, where are you focusing? We are working on strengthening wholesale partnerships and brand partnerships is working with bigger brands in a whole variety of industries to introduce the concept of protecting our ocean through by stop helping to stop microfiber pollution, whether that's with there's opportunities for companies in clearly the laundry industry from washing machine manufacturers and detergent makers um, that's one place. We're working on partnerships in clothing and textiles to introduce this issue along with the products to mitigate their impact. Again, we are not proponents of trying to ban synthetic clothing. We think we just collectively need to do it better. And one of the ways to handle using synthetic clothing better is to use a Coraball. We're also working to promote innovation in a variety of industries, especially laundry and textiles, to come up with solutions that will complement the Coraball. I can say the Coraball was never intended and will not be the only solution to microfiber pollution. In fact, I don't believe there is one solution to microfiber pollution. And there's opportunities for innovation upstream. So let's see if we can make our textiles more resilient so they stop falling apart in the wash. And there's opportunity for innovation, yeah, in washing machines to get those inline filters. So just like your dryer lints or your dryers have a lint filter to have something similar in a washing machine. Right now it is cost prohibitive um, for the washing machine manufacturers or so they say. I think at some point there's going to be a tipping point and there's a company, um, there's a couple companies out there making aftermarket filters that are working incredibly well. Um, there's a company called Lint Lover and Planet Care. They're making something that consumers can get, but I know Planet Care is also working on an inline filter. And um, there's an opportunity for waste treatment facilities to be in on solutions as well. That could be, I mean, that's tough because they're often municipally run. So I actually think um, 
innovation wise, we should be looking towards textiles and laundry industries. Awesome. Well, Rachel, yeah. that was great. And thank you so much for taking this time to tell us about your journey. And uh, I will be posting links to lots of folks, we, lots of the stuff we talked about today. But is there anything else you want to say as we sign off? I just want to say, you know, thank you for being there, being not just an early adopter when it was time for the Kickstarter campaign, but really helping us with the e-commerce side. E-commerce is definitely not something one is born knowing. And I think nor does one actually know anything about it by being on the consumer side. In, in fact, it's incredible how little, because I think the platforms are, are fairly good on the buying side, how little I knew or understood about the process. And so we really appreciate your expertise, Eric. Uh, it helped us a lot. Uh, we've been steadily growing and, and that would have been hard without a good platform to help make that happen. So Aww. thank you. And thank you giving, thank you for giving me the chance to share our story.